Welcome to the Sunday Service Podcast of First Universalist Church, a Unitarian Universalist congregation located in Minneapolis, Minnesota. We are a radically welcoming and progressive religious community, deeply committed to love, justice, spiritual growth, and living out our values in the world. To learn more, visit us online at firstuniversalistchurch.org. Once upon a time, there was a peaceful valley carved through with a babbling brook surrounded by family farms. The farm families had lived on the land for several generations, growing wheat and apples, soybeans and vegetables. They were proud of their little community in which each family managed to eke out a living from their little patch. As the harvest came to a close each year, the farmers gathered for a festival with music and dancing, pies and donuts, and a contest to judge who would be awarded the coveted grand prize blue ribbon for best crop. It was at this time of year the new family moved into the valley, and so their introduction to the community was joyful and celebratory. They were glad to meet such friendly new neighbors, and the neighbors were glad to meet and welcome them. Following the festivities, all the families returned to their farms to button up their barns, repair their roofs, and gather up the final fruits of their labors to feed them through the long winter months ahead. But before the snow blanketed the land, each farm was visited by the children from the new family. They knocked on each farmhouse door and gave thanks for the warm welcome they had received, and they gave each neighbor a gift, a sack of seeds. The next spring, as the ground began to thaw, the farmers were busy in their fields again, planting wheat and soybeans, tending apple trees and vegetable gardens, and in the bare spots here and there around their farms, they planted the mysterious seeds that the newcomers had given them. Now, growing season is a really busy time for farmers, so they didn't see much of one another as the green shoots sprouted up through the rich soil. It wasn't until near harvest time that the farm families all noticed that the sprouts had become tall stalks, and the tall stalks had formed giant seed heads that when they finally unfurled, revealed enormous flowers with dark black seeds in the center, surrounded by cheerful yellow petals. The bees buzzed happily. They were so busy drawing nectar from all the flowers, traveling from farm to farm, their fuzzy legs heavy with pollen. The local farmers, well, they'd never seen sunflowers so bright and big. Sunflower seeds so plump, sunflower oil so plentiful as the oil they pressed from those seeds. At the harvest festival that year, it was unanimously decided. The new family received the grand prize in honor of the big buckets of beautiful flowers that they brought to grace every table. And that year, the honey harvest was more bountiful than ever before, so the donuts and pies were especially sweet. All the people of the valley celebrated long into the night. The new neighbors brought home their blue ribbon and tacked it up on the wall beside their hearth. And then the children gathered sacks of seeds in their wagon and set out. 
one by one, they knocked on each farmhouse door. And time and again, this conversation was had. The children smiled and offered the gift, and the recipient exclaimed, Oh, thank you, friends. But are you sure you want to share these? If you do, someone else may win the prize next year with your seeds. And the children patiently ex explained to each neighbor in turn. That's not how it works at all. The bees that pollinate our flowers also pollinate your flowers and your neighbors and all the flowers in the valley. The bees pay no attention to fences. When your sunflowers struggle to survive, so do ours. When your sunflowers thrive, ours thrive too. Please accept our gift. Enjoy the beauty and together we'll feast and dance again next year. And so they did. So friends, as we are coming into the coming into the space, coming into this time of um, this time of uh, gathering, of reflecting, um, I want to start by asking, who's in the room this morning? And in particular, what I'm curious about: this is MEA weekend. I have no idea what that actually means this year in a time of online school. And uh, I'm curious. I'm curious if there are any youth that are um, still hanging around the computer, still connecting with the service. Uh, so if there are any youth here with us, feel free to throw, um, throw in the chat uh, your name if you want, what grade you're in, maybe ask your grown-up uh, that's near, maybe they're nearer the computer to do that with you. I'm curious. I'm curious about, um, I'm curious about which youth are here with us. And I'm curious about that in particular this morning. Part of the reason, okay, so we've got uh, some seventh graders, ninth graders. Awesome. Um, thank you for, for sharing that. Yeah, and I'm curious. Keep, keep letting me know who's here, um, who's here and who's kind of hanging in. Um, 
So the, the reason that I ask is that, um, you know, Sunday, Sunday worship, if you haven't noticed, is, uh, is multi-generational every Sunday, right? And I have really loved that. I think one of the things, um, yes, apparently my, my daughters are here, yes. <laughs> um, one of the things that I love about church is that church is one of the few places where we have multi-generational community. It's one of the few places where we gather, right? And I really miss being able to be in the sanctuary to see everyone's faces, to look at a pew and see newborn babies to folks who are retired, um, you know, really sort of the whole, uh, the, the whole range, right? The, the whole um, range of generations um, connecting with each other. But I'm also curious because when I was little, I grew up in this like just amazingly political family. And so at our, um, at our dinner table, you know, have family, you know, have friends and family over. And um, invariably, there would be these um, just like big, huge conversations happening around me. And, uh, you know, like um, people talking about feminism and all the many aspects of politics that my family was, was involved in and communism and socialism, these great big ideas, right? And no matter what, anytime Little Arif had a question. They would stop the conversation they were having and they would break it down for me in language that I could understand in ways that I could understand no matter how old I was, right? And it mattered so much to me, right? It mattered so much that, um, that they believed in my ability to be part of what they were doing and they invited me in. And so I'm curious which of our youth are here with us because I wanna make that same invitation to you, all right? Um, if during any of these services, if a question comes up, if you're like, I'm not sure, um, I'm not sure that I'm following you there. I have, you know, I'm curious about it. Absolutely talk with your grownups, right? But I also want you to know that I and all the other staff at church are here as well, right? So if you have a question, if I'm preaching something, something comes up in a prayer, anything like that, you have a question, absolutely reach out, all right? Like, your grown-ups can help you get in touch with me. Um, I'm not that hard to find on the church website, to be honest. Um, so please, uh, you know, if you, um, if you have any questions, anything like that, let me know. So it's great to know. It's great to know you're here. It's great to see how old you are. Um, I want to share a couple stories with you this morning. And the stories that I want to share with you, the first story I want to share with you is from the Buddhist teacher, Pema Chodron, okay? And it goes something like this. And because I'm telling you stories, feel free to like get a little more comfortable. I'm sitting here on my meditation cushion. I'm trying to, you know, like find a, find a spot, can get the wiggles out a little bit. So this first story, Buddhist teacher, Pema Chodron, okay? So here's what she says. She says that once upon a time, there was a, a Zen teacher, Zen master, and this big burly soldier comes to visit the Zen master and says, tell me the nature of heaven and hell. And the Zen master, the Zen teacher looks at the soldier and says, why should I tell you? You're this scruffy, disgusting, kind of smelly, soldier 
you can't understand anything that I would say about the nature of heaven and hell. The soldier is consumed by rage, just absolutely consumed, draws out their weapon as if they're going to strike the Zen teacher, and the Zen master says, that's hell. That's hell. Instantly, the soldier understands that they have just created their own hell. This, this being filled with hatred, with self-protection, with anger, with resentment, with all these awful emotions. And they see that they were so caught up in that hell. So caught up that they were ready to strike someone in anger. Tears fill their eyes. The soldier puts their palms together to bow in gratitude for that insight, for that teaching. And the Zen master says, that's heaven. Now, Pema Chodron goes on to say that the point here, and this is important, the point here is not to get rid of hell and to seek heaven, right? She says the point here is to develop an open heart and an open mind to all of this, to everything. She says only when we can be open to all of it can we realize that no matter what comes along, no matter what comes along, that we are always standing, we are always sitting, we are always existing in the middle of sacred space. And I love this reminder, right? I love this reminder that as human beings, we will experience heavens that we create in our heart, in our mind. We will experience hells that we create in our heart, in our mind. And that this is what it means to be human. And so I wonder, I wonder if you see yourself in this story anywhere. I wonder if you have ever been the angry warrior filled with rage, self-protection, resentment. I wonder if you've ever been the grateful warrior, the grateful soldier, bowing deeply for the reflection that was offered, the insight that was shared. I got to tell you, lately, I have been spending way more time than I'd like with the angry soldier inside me, the angry warrior inside me. I've been filled with all kinds of feelings that I don't like feeling. And so when I read this story a few weeks back, it was one of those moments when a whole lot of stuff just falls away and you see yourself reflected in a different light. Has that ever happened for you? where the right teaching falls into your lap at just the right time, you hit just the right little nugget. Maybe it wasn't even meant for you, right? You're like walking down the street and you hear someone else say the thing that you needed to hear. Covered with a mask these days, but. And please do, y'all, like, uh, you know, feel free to, to drop stuff in the chat as, as we're going along here. Um, I miss being able to see your faces as I'm preaching. I'm imagining you. Um, but I absolutely welcome, um, you know, if something, if something strikes you, throw an amen in there, <laughs> whatever, whatever feels appropriate. Um, 
So, you know, the reason I shared this story is because it's been so good for me to remember that no matter what, right, that this being human is something that I am not ever going to escape from, right? That heaven or hell, we're always in the middle of sacred space. And I've been thinking about that. I've been thinking about that. I've been thinking about beloved community. I've been thinking about this idea of community of communities that we've been talking about. And I feel like sometimes we imagine the beloved community as this far off place, right? This far off place that we're never going to see some place where we have evolved into these perfect human beings. And more and more, I'm pretty sure that that's not true, right? That, that that's actually not how it works. That, that I think, in fact, that idea that the beloved community is someplace where we're perfect, where we've like transcended some of the muck of being human, I think that that idea might even get in our way. You see, folks, when I look at our history, as far back as I can see, they, there have been folks saying that to be human is to exist in a swirl of feelings, to be caught in this web of needs and desires and inspiration and delusion, that to be human is often to be confused and to need each other, to need our community in that confusion, to need help and support. And so because our psychology, because the way that our hearts and brains work hasn't really, hasn't seemed to change dramatically in several thousand years, I'm thinking that perhaps it's unlikely to change all that much in the next several thousand. That perhaps the beloved community that we seek isn't about achieving some state of perfection, but rather it's about learning to work with what we have, with who we are, and doing the best that we can from right here in the middle of this sacred ground. And my point here, friends, is that I, and maybe you too, don't need to beat ourselves up when we fail to be perfect. Instead, it seems like my work, and maybe yours too, is to remember that I am unlikely to eliminate anger and greed and resentment and all the things that I sometimes wish I didn't feel. And instead, my work is to learn to be present with all this, all this beautiful mess, right? And to keep moving in the direction of the world that I dream of. Keep working with my stuff. Absolutely, right? Keep working with my stuff so that I can, really so that I can not be derailed by it and so that I can show up in community just a little bit better, a little bit more healed, a little bit more whole. As Pema Chodron says, it's about meeting all of it and remembering that all of it is sacred ground. And friends, it's, it's important to note here that we are making a turn. Our understanding of where we're going is evolving, as understandings do. We're understanding that the beloved community that we dream of may in fact already be here. It just is not spread out very evenly. Now, when I think about that, that's a relief for me. It's a relief because it means we don't actually have to make it from scratch. 
We don't have to make it from scratch. We just have to turn our heads and our hearts and our nation in a different way. That's all. That's only three things. What also helps me in this understanding is that for the big beloved community to work, our community of communities needs to be one in which every member of the community has or can access what they need to flourish. And I want to be clear about this, right? This is not a has the opportunity to have. What I'm talking about here is has, right? It's there, it's gettable, no hoops to jump through, no tests to pass, no guard at the gate, no locks on the doors. You have what you need to flourish. And so do you, and so do you, and so do you, and so do you, and so does your neighbor. You get, you get what I'm driving at. And so if, if that's what a community is, then why a community of communities, right? Why are we using that language? We're using that language because we're different. We're using that language, community of communities, because we're different. Something that I've seen since the pandemic has started for us is that some folks have found their people. Some folks have found their people and grabbed on tight, huddled up, potted up, whatever you want to call it. Folks have found their people and locked in for the long haul. And that's great. I love that. I love that. If you're here at church and you haven't found your people, call me. I want to help with that. That's what church is for. And in talking with many of you, what I have also heard is that right now, many of us are experiencing this deep in our guts need to connect with other folk who are like us in some specific ways. What I mean is that each of us inhabits a range of identities. For instance, I am a, I'm, I'm a brown child of immigrants. I'm a cisgendered male. I'm a person who currently inhabits a reasonably strong body that can do most of the tasks of daily life with ease. I have access to financial resources. I'm a parent of one teen. I have another who's on the cusp of teenhood. I'm married. I have an aging parent. My family has a history of mental illness. My family has a history of addiction. And there are more identities that I inhabit. These are some that feel most prominent right now. And I wonder about the identities that you inhabit. Feel free to share those in the chat if you want, the identities that feel most prominent for you right now. I think you get the picture. That this is real for all of us, that we all inhabit these different identities, these intersecting identities. And what I'm hearing from talking with many of you right now is that in this strange in-between space of pandemic and uprising and election and the coming winter, that in this space of stress and confusion and trauma and healing, many of us, oh, thank you for sharing these identities that you're inhabiting. Many of us are finding that some of the identities that we inhabit feel more prominent. They're closer to the surface. They feel more important to our experience right now and we crave connection with folks who share those identities. So let me share an example with you. I'm trying to make a new friend right now. 
this is perhaps a ridiculous thing to try to do in the midst of a pandemic, but it really is quite sweet as a 44 year old adult to be trying to make a new friend. And so we are just getting to know each other. We're just getting to know each other. And we were out on a walk with his dog last week, talking about our backgrounds when in the space of three sentences, he shared not only that he too is the child of immigrants, but also summed up the experience so perfectly and succinctly that I instantly recognized that we'd had very similar experiences growing up. And I knew in that moment that at least in this one dimension, he was one of my people, that I could breathe differently around him knowing that this was one part of myself that I didn't have to explain. That's what I mean when I say that we're different. In a community of communities, we don't pretend that we're all the same because we know we're not. In a community of communities, we are able to name the ways that we're different and it's okay. It's okay because we're not competing with each other for resources and attention. Single parents with young children can say, I need to connect with other folks in similar boats because this is hard and I want to be around people who won't judge me. Folks living with chronic illnesses can say, I wanna be around folks who I don't have to explain spoons to. BIPOC and multiracial folk can say, I want to be around people who don't question the validity of my experience. This isn't about exclusion. This isn't about drawing boundaries. It's about the notion that in healthy relationships, we can be different. We can have our own spaces and be in places where we don't need to explain these important details of our lives. We can do this so that we can be more healthy and healed and whole for the time that we are in that bigger community, the bigger we. We can tend our own fields, but we do it knowing that our neighbor's harvest is connected to ours. That the well-being of the whole community depends on the well-being of every smaller community in it. But why does this matter so much? Let me tell you a little bit about something I, I learned about recently called Turing circles that helped me to understand this uh, a little bit differently and I think a little bit better. So Turing circles, these are named after Alan Turing who developed the mathematical theories that describe them. Turing circles are a phenomena in nature where vegetation grows in little circles on dry patches of ground. Now, when I read about this, Scientists were looking at this in parts of Australia and um, some countries in Southern Africa. But basically, these, these grasses, right, these little clumps of grasses weren't spread out across the landscape, but instead would grow in these clumps, these tight little circles. And as scientists dug into the what and the why behind it, this is what they learned. Now, conventional wisdom, which is to say the way that we view the world through the various lenses of our identities and the world we've been raised in. Conventional wisdom tends to make us think if we think about desert grasses at all, and I have to say I tend not to, conventional wisdom tends to make us think that in places where they grow, they would likely be distributed more or less evenly, right? That that way, every little blade of grass has its own space to grow. They won't crowd each other. Each blade has a chance at success and opportunity to take a run at the great Darwinian game of life it turns out that that's not how it works at all. 
what scientists have found is that each is that the grasses clump together right they they clump because it makes them all healthier and thank you david for for sharing some about alan turing his story is um, an amazing one if you're not familiar with it it's an amazing one it's a tragic one if you're not familiar with it i definitely recommend um uh, checking it out and learning more about his life and his work. So what they found out about these grasses, the, these Turing circles, is that they clump together because it makes them all healthier. Now check this out, all right? Each, each little circle of grasses makes its own tiny microclimate. They form what is, in essence, this like small hyper-local irrigation system. I love this. They modify their immediate vicinity to such an extent that at the level of the soil, microbes and probiotic bacteria can live, which improves the soil, which improves the grasses. You get the idea. And what's even cooler is that these little circles make things better for the surrounding land because by managing the water, the little bit of water that does fall even the land around these circles benefits from the increased micro moisture in the air. And believe it or not, the healthiest circles are those that grow the closest. The grasses leaning up against each other, clumps, circles, growing around other circles. So friends, check it out. Let's pull back a minute. Let's see what we see. In an inhospitable environment, the organisms that circle together near other organisms that are circling together thrive by modifying their microenvironments to such an extent that they improve both their own patch of earth, but also the earth around them. Let me say that again. In an inhospitable environment, we don't know anything about inhospitable environments, do we? In an inhospitable environment, the organisms that clump together near other clumps thrive by modifying their environment to such an extent that they improve both their own patch of earth and the earth around them. It kind of makes you wonder, doesn't it? What might happen if we did that too? May it be so, and amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast from First Universalist Church of Minneapolis. We're a faith community committed to racial justice, and together we give, receive, and grow in the universalist spirit of love and hope. Please visit us online at firstuniversalistchurch.org.